we get the pleasure of reading together today of the flagrant abuse of the Messiah. So with that in mind, in all soberness, prepare your hearts for the reading of God's word. Please stand with me as I read Mark 15, verses 1 through 20. Mark 15, 1 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he was used he was used to release uh, at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in the prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, "Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews?" For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him, uh, have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, um, scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You ever experienced being completely underappreciated? I know you have. And I mean legitimately underappreciated. Like, you've been done wrong, you've been passed over, been forgotten, disregarded. Um, a long time ago, I worked as a corrections officer for the Department of Corrections. And, uh, I worked at that particular time, I worked there several years, and at that particular time I was on the midnight shift, the graveyard shift, at a super max unit. So these are the baddest of the bad, the worst of the worst that are in the prison system are in this particular unit where I worked, and I was working at graveyard. One of the responsibilities of those that worked in graveyard, at least at that particular time, was to collect the mail that the inmates would send out, and two of us would be assigned to take it to a room. We would dump out all the mail, and it would, randomly, we were to select letters and to read the letters. Um, 
it, my, my recollection is we counted 10 of them. You know, you literally just took the pile, one, two, three, four, and when you got to number 10, you're like, okay, I'm gonna read that letter because everything that takes place in a prison, you know, is subject to, to uh, being examined and, and everything. You don't have privacy there. So it, it was a, it's just a random way of, uh, of checking letters on the off chance that somebody's, you know, got like an escape plan or something in a letter, right? So I'm working one night, graveyard shift there with another guy going through one, two, three, four, get to the 10th letter. Happens to be of the baddest of the bad in the supermax, this guy is notorious. I mean, everybody knows who this guy is. He's done some horrific acts. I open the letter and I just do my cursory starting to read. And would you believe there is an escape plot in this letter? No kidding. I'm reading this, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Now, I'm not saying it was a great plan, <laughs> but it was a clear and serious plan. I mean, there was no question. Now, I am so excited because I am just a line-level guy working a graveyard job, relegated to reading a few letters, and so I'm excited. I take it to my boss. Uh, my boss takes it to his boss. That boss eventually takes it to the warden and uh, they end up searching the guy's cell. And anyway, all that stuff goes on. Um, but in my mind, I thought, I feel pretty good about myself. I'm looking forward to a little bit of recognition. And what took place was that not only did I not get recognition, the boss didn't name my name. He basically assumed credit without lying, but he basically did the, you know, so one of my guys, blah, 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 and it became about him to the uh, administrative folks that, who I wanted, of course, their approval and their attention. Now, you might imagine how I responded. I was angry. I was disappointed and all of that. Not that I should have, you know, I work for the government, I know how it works, they're not like gonna cut me a check or something, but I wanted recognition and I didn't get it. And my question to you is, when this type of circumstances happened to you, how have you responded? When you were genuinely underappreciated, you were generally overlooked or forgotten, how do you respond to that impulse? Do you assert your rights? I demand. You punish the violator verbally. You didn't do this. I had it coming. You didn't do it. Or maybe it's the other direction. Silent. Oh, okay, fine. And it turns into some kind of a pouting scenario. Well, when we look at what happens in this case with Christ, it reframes our attitude in a hurry. Think about, first of all, who... Jesus is right from the outset before we even get to what's happening here in Matthew 28 18 it says and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me all authority we're talking about Jesus Christ all authority not just does he outrank every human being, every king, every president, every dignitary, every potentate of all time on this earth? 
He outranks, he has more authority than any spiritual being that ever existed. All authority was given to him in heaven and on earth. In Matthew 9 and verse 6, he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus Christ was of such purity, he was of such holiness, that not only was he without sin, but he could even purify the sinful. He could wipe away the corruption that others had. In Mark chapter 1, remember just after one of Jesus' earliest miracles, Mark 1.24, the demon himself that Jesus cast out of the man said to Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon said that. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, and acknowledged that he had both the authority and the power to destroy them. And then even more than that, the demoniac, you know, that guy that had legion that was filled with demons. In Mark 5, 7, it reads, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This whole legion of demons recognizes the identity of Jesus and the authority that he has to torment this legion of demons. Jesus Christ was the second person of the Trinity. He is the second person of the Trinity, and he took the form of a man. That's where the humiliation really starts. He chose to take the form of a man, and not only did his own chosen people, not only did other men and women on this earth fail to receive Christ as God, but they scourged and delivered him to be crucified. So, not just the people, the chief priests, not just the chief priests, the, uh, the high priest met privately to, and then resulted in condemning him to death and then striking him and delivering him over to be crucified. And the prophet Isaiah told us how Jesus was going to respond to that. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, this is what he said Jesus would do. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Woe. He offered his back and did not turn his face away when they spit on him. And all of this scene, this beating, this humiliation, this disgrace is lined out for us in these verses in 16 to 20. Now in verse 16, uh, it says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. Uh, that word for palace in Greek is uh, praetorium, and I, that's helpful because some of you may even have a, a, a version, a translation of the Bible that actually names it as praetorium. And 
this can be a little bit confusing. I know it has been for me in the past, but just so you have some sense of the logistics of things is that because it, uh, Mark's account doesn't talk about how Jesus went from Pilate to Herod and then back to Pilate again. Um, but where it can get a little bit confusing is that this palace, um, the, the building, the palace complex was built by Herod the Great. The Herod that Pilate sends him to is Herod Antipas, which is his son. So Herod Antipas does not have jurisdiction. Herod the Great did, but he's gone. Herod Antipas did not have jurisdiction over Jerusalem proper. He had just jurisdiction over Galilee, where Jesus was um, um, participating in his ministry for the, for the majority of that time, and of another area called Perea, which is just to the east of Jerusalem. But there they are in this palace, in the praetorium. So if you're thinking of Herod the Great's palatial complex that he built, he was known as a builder, there was one portion of it that's known as a praetorium. So in other words, this is like a barracks. This is where civil government's taking place. This is their town hall. Uh, uh, this is where the soldiers are going to be. This is the place where Pilate is going to meet out any justice. So when all of this stuff happens, and we talked about it last time, how they came early because they knew he takes care of business first thing in the morning so he can get to his leisure, this is the location that it would be. It would be at this praetorium, this separate part of the complex. Now, to the question that's, that, that's kind of easy to ask is, well, who outranked whom? You know, did Pilate outrank um, Herod? In, in a sense, he did because Pilate is Roman. So he's got the uh, authority of the Roman government behind him. Herod Antipas does not, but he is also there. So you can see why Pilate sent him over to Herod, because remember, Herod Antipas was over that area of Galilee. That was his jurisdiction. So when Jesus gave his answer and he talked about his ministry in Galilee, that tipped off Pilate to say, oh, well, if a lot of this stuff took place in Galilee... The guy that's responsible for Galilee's, like right next door. I'm going to send you over to that guy. Herod ends up asking him questions, humiliating him, and sending him back, but did not say that he was guilty. And so when we read here in verse 16 that the soldiers led him away inside the palace, what is probably intended here is that at this point he's led away from Herod that's in his father's building and back to that uh, praetorium area of the complex, the governor's headquarters. So hopefully you're following that now. Now we're talking about the area that's been reserved for the governor to govern, where, where uh, city business is to take place. And what we have here is uh, a bunch of soldiers, and it says um, the soldiers led him away, and in, I believe in, uh, well, yeah, later in the verse it says, and they called together the whole battalion. So this battalion or a cohort, it was probably about 600 soldiers. It could have also just meant that all that were on duty. But bear in mind that all of this stuff is taking place during the Passover and all the festival stuff that happens. So you have all of these people there, which means that the Romans are sending extra forces into Jerusalem to rule. They're all, they're, they've all been sent up there to take care of any issues that are going on to rule over these Jews. And now you have these outsiders. So they're not the temple guards. They're, they're a whole bunch of hundreds of them that are from outside that are, that are now there to help take care of business. 
And, of course, this all goes on inside the barracks. That's why in verse 16 it says they led him away inside the palace, so inside the praetorium, that is the governor's headquarters, so that's Pilate's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. So now they're inside. They're out of sight from the Jews, all of the people that were chanting to crucify him. Now, in John's gospel, in this parallel account, it says that the Jews would not go inside because they didn't want to be unclean. I mean, of course, the ridiculous irony there that they are following a rule about not wanting to be unclean during Passover by, by, by being in that area while they're actually handing over their Savior to the Romans is, uh, is a bit rich. But he goes in to this area, and we know that the Romans didn't like the Jews to begin with. These Roman soldiers, they hate the Jews to start with, and now they have to go there to... Uh, to Jerusalem to basically police their Jewish celebrations. And now not only do they have themselves a Jew, they have a guy that apparently is the king of the Jews. Oh, we got Jew number one right here in our midst. So you can imagine this is the ideal distraction for them that have been having to patrol these uh, people that they despise. And then you add to that just the, the, the layer that, you know, anytime sin has a private, what seems like a private place to be exercised, it seems like the intensity or the, de- the degree of the sin is ramped up even more. Now, in verse 17, we see that they, uh, they clothe him with this cloak, the, the piece that is good to, to keep in mind that Matthew includes and Mark um, did not is the fact that Jesus was stripped. So he's naked at this point. They remove Jesus's clothing and they put on him this purple cloak. And of course, we know that a purple cloak represents royalty. And this is where uh, there's a little bit of disagreement about as far as the purple cloak, like was this a truly uh, like a, like a in good condition, brilliant, expensive purple cloak. And I know in the study Bible that I have, it actually leaned that direction and said, you know, they spared no expense to humiliate him. But I would actually say that I believe it is the other direction, that what this probably is is a faded soldier's garment. So the soldiers wore red. They're inside their barracks. And um, everything else that you see that they do to mock him is makeshift, right? The crown of thorns, the reed, all of those things are makeshift. Um, Also, you figure a real one, a legitimate purple cloak would be very expensive. And Jesus is naked. He's a Jew and he's bleeding. He's been scourged. He's been beaten. um, And the thought that they're going to take something like that uh, and and put it on him seems unlikely. Um, Also, they're already in their own barracks. There would be easy access to some faded old garment. And then maybe the the best reason or the the strongest argument is that in Mark's account, it says that the cloak is purple, but in Matthew's account, it's red. And what we have here then is probably, you know, a red that's faded, starts to look purple, and they're intending it to be put on him and that sense of royalty. So you basically have this combination of a purple red garment that's being a makeshift garment that is being thrown over him. So regardless, a purple cloak is certainly the apparel of, of royalty. A red one is, a, is the garb of a soldier. He was beaten. He was bloody. He was naked. He's a pitiful sight. They dress him up like somebody would dress up their dog, except, of course, 
a dog gets much more respect than what was going on with Jesus. And then these soldiers, thinking themselves rather clever, grab a, uh, grab a, a thorny branch and then weave a shoddy crown of thorns to put on him to add to the humiliation. Um, I don't believe that the, the crown was put on there for the, for the main purpose of causing pain. That wasn't like part of something that they normally did. I think that was just an added benefit for them that it caused him pain, but that really it was just part of that whole idea of humiliating him by putting a crown on his head that is made of thorns. Then in verse 18, we see they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. So we're talking about Romans. What would they be used to saying? Hail Caesar, right? That's, that's, that's every day for them. Hail Caesar, and they adapt it to the scenario. They throw this ragged uh, purple and red cloak on him. They put this crown of thorn, this makeshift crown of thorns that they twist and put on his head. And now they say, hail, king of the Jews. And of course, what, what they're really communicating is long live the king as they're about to march him straight to the cross. Verse 19 says they're striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. I would add again that in, in Matthew, the additional piece of information we get is that they force him to hold it. They force him to hold it. So it's supposed to signify a scepter, another piece uh, of apparel that... Uh, that only somebody in high office would have. So here you go. Here's your makeshift. Let me grab a reed. Boy, they're creative in their mockery. They make him hold it, and then they just take it and whack him on the head either. In both Matthew and in Mark, they beat him about the head with the scepter that they forced him to hold. This is just a systematic humiliation, utter humiliation of this king of the Jews. The spitting, as you might imagine, of course, is uh, degrading, but there is an aspect of that that is a mockery as well because a real king would deserve a kiss. That's what kings, if you are of that high authority and you enter the presence of a king, you would be expected to kiss, you know, kiss the ring or offer a kiss. Even, you know, in the New Testament, we're told to give each other, greet each other with a holy kiss. And this is their version of greeting the king of the Jews with a kiss, is to spit on him. And then the last part of verse 19 there, what's translated kneeling down in homage to him, it looks like one verb. There are actually two different verbs going on there. It's kind of woodenly or directly saying while kneeling down, they were prostrating themselves. So they were, this wasn't a tip of the hat. This wasn't a, oh, you know, my liege kind of things. They were dropping to their knees before this naked, bloody, beaten man with a faded cloak, a crown of thorns, and a reed in his hand, and prostrating themselves to obnoxiously participate in the ridicule of Jesus. This is wholehearted humiliation, unabated humiliation, as creative as they could come up with, to humiliate Jesus. And then finally in verse 20, once they had had their fill and they know they're going to take him back in public, they take the cloak back off, they put his cloak back on, and they then lead him out to be crucified. Now, 
I think a legitimate question when you consider the degree of how horrible this is, this macabre scene, this, this grotesque scene of humiliation. Why so harsh? Why so extreme? Meaning, like, what these soldiers, sure they hate Jews, but what would cause them to go to this point? Why would they so flagrantly, so violently, and publicly humiliate him? Of course, they could be swept up in the in the emotion of it all, but really, this seems like it is to an extreme degree. And uh, I, I've produced at least three reasons that this would take place. The first is that it's the adversary that's driving this. This is the evil one himself, the Satan, that is the energy behind this. Remember that this whole thing, this whole scene started with the chief priests in that wannabe trial with the Sanhedrin. That's where it all started. Those are the people of whom Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the chief priests were executing the will of their father. That's what they were doing. And then they just hand him over. They deliver him over to Pilate, who then delivers Jesus over to the soldiers. Jesus calls the evil one the ruler of this world. We also know from other portions of the New Testament that the purpose that we are to put the whole armor of God is to stand against the schemes of the devil. devil. We know that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is who he is. This is what he does. And he went all in. All chips are getting pushed in on his scheme to devour Jesus. And these sinful men, these soldiers, played their part perfectly. They played their part perfectly. That was the evil one's desire to take place, and they did exactly what they wanted to do. And that leads to the, to, uh, the second thing, which is that they're consumed with bitterness, anger, and hatred. And, you know, what, what do people love to do in this world? They love to tear other people down that have any kind of authority, um, that are in positions of power, in particular, maybe those that are morally pure, and they weren't going to have any of that. They certainly weren't going to have a Jew in authority. Are you kidding me? Galatians 5, verses 20 and 21 say, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, all of those are obvious marks of the unbeliever and of the sinful nature. And there they are giving full vent to all of it. And then the third reason is that all of this was in the providence of God. We talked about this last time. The chief priests did what they wanted to do when they exercised their free will. Pilate did exactly what he wanted to do when he exercised his free will in declaring him guilty or handing him over to be crucified. The crowd did exactly what they wanted to do when they yelled, crucify him. And when Pilate questioned them why they would want to do that, and they yelled, all the more, crucify him. 
Now we have the soldiers reveling in their sin and relishing the humiliation. They're doing exactly what they want to do, but we know that all of this falls within the providence of God. In fact, if you just turn back a couple of pages, you might remember this from Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Jesus told his apostles, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This was all within God's perfect plan. They did exactly what they wanted to do while they're working out in reality exactly what God wants to take place. Well, if that's what God wants to take place, that leads to a different question. Why did Jesus need to be humiliated? Why does he need to go through all of that cruelty? We know that he needed to die and to be resurrected. That had to happen. If we're going to gain any kind of salvation, if there's going to be victory over the grave, Jesus had to die and then be resurrected. But why the humiliation? The answer is our sin. Because our sin not only required a death, but it required this profound humiliation. If you would, turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 53. You see that all all of this was laid out long before it took place. In Isaiah 53, starting at verse 3, you'll notice that the starting point is shame. It says, he was despised and rejected by men. That's where it started. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And then in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Despite the fact that he's bearing our grief and our shame, we treat him as an outcast. Or, in this case, the Jews... And then the soldiers. And then in verse 5, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. So, of course, chastisement, we're talking about discipline. The discipline that was our sins deserved were on him. And then when you go down to verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he opened not his mouth. In verse 10, we see that it it was all part of God's will. It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. And then this is what we need to see is that in verse 11 out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant be made 
uh, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Do you see that it's out of his anguish that he is bearing the iniquities? That these things involve a process. It isn't that Jesus needed to come down and even to live a perfect life and then to just die and then be raised again. There is humiliation that is involved in the penalty of our sin. There is shame associated with our sin. Jesus is paying the penalty of the shame that our sins deserved. Not just the once for all justification, the flip the switch, legal justification before God. The sins that we commit demand a punishment. And Jesus experienced that even in the humiliation. Out of the anguish of his soul, we were accounted righteous and he was bearing the iniquity. It says he bore the sins of many. It says that he was pouring himself out to death. That is not he went to die. He's pouring himself out to death. That's part of what happens when he instituted the Lord's Supper and he was pouring the wine. He was showing that he was spilling his blood. That is not an instantaneous thing. There is humiliation associated. There is shame. And then we have this reiterated, actually, the same thing in the New Testament as well. Everything that Isaiah prophesied was then repeated in 1 Peter chapter 2 at verse 22. First Peter 2:22 says, "He committed no sin." Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. Jesus was submitting himself, not just to death, but to the humiliation that preceded the death. Because he was submitting himself to just judgment. That's what it says in verse 33. He entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Not that he, of course, should be judged for that, but because our sins that were on the shoulders of our Savior had to be judged, and that judgment included a humiliation. And by his wounds, his wounds, you have been healed. And in another, um, you know, what man intended for evil, God intended for good moment, we have this whole scene of this mock royal coronation. That's what's going on. They put the cloak on him. They put the crown on him. They shove a scepter in his hands. They fall down before him. They say, hail, king of the Jews. It's all a reenactment of, this, uh, of a mockery to disgrace him. And yet, unwittingly, they participated in a coronation ceremony. In doing all that, you know what they did? They reenacted what is going to take place before the rider on the white horse. Listen to this. Out of Revelation 19, this is verses 11 to 16. 
Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that is to say many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That can also be interpreted or translated rather a scepter of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This rider on the white horse is exemplifying, is coming back in judgment to rule with a rod of iron. And they are following through with an accurate description, with an, <laughs> giving him the correct apparel, assuming the correct posture before a true king. And what they fully meant and did exactly what they wanted to do in their sin were actually carrying out the truth of what is to come. Everything they were doing prefigured the judgment that is to come by the one with many diadems, a robe dipped in blood, ruling with a scepter of iron, who is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and the one before whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, the truth of the matter is, there is a day of judgment. This writer is going to come. That is a matter of fact. So the question is, are you going to be on the business end of that rod of iron for failing to repent of your sins and throwing your hope into the Savior that paid the penalty for our sins? Or are you going to be rejoicing that this writer has come to bring justice? You're either celebrating that he is bringing true and perfect and holy and incorruptible justice or you are the subject of that justice. You realize, don't you, that the same man who said to turn the other cheek is the one who's going to be wearing a robe dipped in blood. Mercy or justice, those are your options. You gain mercy when you fall before him in repentance of your sins and believing in the work that he accomplished on the cross and the fact that he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling. Today is the day of salvation. Brothers and sisters, do, do me a favor. Turn one more time. Pull your Bibles back out and turn to Philippians 2. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, meaning even with that added level of humiliation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, it says in the beginning there in verse 5, Have this mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be grasped. That means he did not assert his rights. He didn't keep a grip on it. Instead, he submitted to the humiliation of becoming a man. He submitted to the further humiliation of the process of what we just read about and what these soldiers subjected him to. And then he further submits himself to the humiliation of a death on the cross. And when we get to the end, I had an old professor that always said, always find out what the therefore is therefore. And right there in verse 9, it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, here is the reason, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So if we know that that is the case, and that Jesus did not hang on to what was rightfully his, how do you answer the question that was at the beginning? Have this mind among yourselves. Do you have this mind that's described right here? Do you have this mind? I asked you at the very beginning, have you experienced being underappreciated, overlooked, forgotten? Of course you have, legitimately. But do you have this mind about it? Christ took the shame that was owed to you. That's the, the, the whole thing with this humiliation thing. It's shame that was owed to you. Your sins earned that shame, and he took it. So, do you take credit that belongs to God? In your prayers, does God get the glory for your accomplishments? In talking to others, does God get the credit? When they see what's going on in your marriage, when they see how you are as a parent, when they see the fruit of raising a child in, in godly admonition. Does God get the credit for that? And I'm not talking about the football touchdown credit. You know, that, that's weak. No. Does God, do they get the gospel because they're recognizing something in you? Are you giving them the gospel, their need to repent and believe so that God gets the credit for what you've accomplished? And then consider the opposite. Do you distance yourself from the shame of the Christian life? Are there things about being a Christian that the Bible says is true, that under the right circumstances you distance yourself? Do you soften the language of the Bible so it doesn't sound so offensive? Do you intentionally weaken biblical concepts in an effort to get God off the hook? You know, God's, you know, do you do that? Don't. When Jesus was going to be flogged, they took off his cloak. What did he do? 
offered up his back when they were going to spit on him he did not turn away it is the glory of the shame of the cross so when the world metaphorically wants to flog us when the world wants to spit on us because we stand on Christ and the truth that this scripture communicates then we should offer up our back we should take it in the face we should give Christ the credit where credit is due and not be tempted to distance ourselves from what the world considers the shame of the Christian life by his wounds you were healed let's pray Lord God this is this kind of shame this kind of humiliation it, it's it's difficult. Uh, it's difficult to read. It's difficult to picture. It's uncomfortable. And praise you. Praise you for it. Because it's the filth of our own sin, the, corrupt, the corruption of our own sinful desires, our own sinful actions, our own sinful words that, that put that on the back of Christ. But thank you for his example. Thank you, Jesus that you did exactly what was prophesied of you, that you did not turn your back, that you offered it up, that you did not drop your head in shame, but you took the shame on our behalf. Lord, help us to give the credit that is due to you and to be unafraid and unashamed of the truth of your holy scriptures. In Christ's name, amen.